the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. You know, I just want you to know, when he says longest-running, that's just a polite way of saying he's an old guy. I just, <laughs> just full disclosure here. Good afternoon. Welcome. It is Tuesday. It is the ninth day of October, and welcome to a new edition of Lifeline. We are, of course, here Monday through Friday from 5 until 7 p.m., addressing issues that impact your world and your life. Coming up in tonight's program, we're going to be joined by constitutional lawyer Brad Dacus of the Pacific Justice Institute. He'll update us on a case of a property tax, a special property tax being levied by the city of San Rafael against a church there that could cost the church tens of thousands of dollars. You say, wait a minute, Craig, I thought churches were exempt from paying taxes. Yeah, the church thought so, too. We're going to find out what's going on when Brad Dacus joins us later on in the hour. Also on tonight's show, syndicated talk show host Bob Zadok. We'll talk a bit about now what? Both sides post-Kavanaugh hearings are saying that their bases are energized. What's the future of the Supreme Court look like? And could there be the possibility of one of the parties attempting court packing in 2020? All that and more coming up later on on this edition of Lifeline. I take this office with gratitude and no bitterness. On the Supreme Court, I will seek to be a force for stability and unity. My goal is to be a great justice for all Americans. They're the newest member of the United States Supreme Court, Brett Kavanaugh. And, of course, he was sworn into his job at a White House ceremony just yesterday, Kavanaugh's oath-capping a grueling nomination process that divided the nation and certainly has had an impact on Congress. Now, what about Congress getting back to business? What is the month between now and November going to look like coming into the midterm general election? With some insights, we're joined by Congressman Tom McClintock, he represents our state to Washington, D.C., from the 4th District, and always, Congressman McClintock, an honor and a privilege to have you join us. I know that you are probably, like most of the nation, uh, relieved that uh, the week that was is finally behind us. I guess the big question is, what's the future look like? Given the degree of of consternation and division and bickering going on, my goodness, I mean, I I think a lot of Americans are wondering whether or not the Congress can pull together and get back to the business of the nation. Well, it is not the first time that our country's drifted from its founding principles, but every time it does, those principles start to pull us back. So um, I rather think that the Kavanaugh hearings may have been a, a turning point in that process. I think the American people got a good, clear look at what the far left would mean if they were ever to seize control of our judicial system. It would be a brave new world where mere accusation becomes proof of guilt, um, 
and innocence can only be established by the impossible task of proving a negative. That was the position of the Senate uh, Democrats uh, uh, and and the uh, far left media during the can- uh, during the confirmation process. We watched the Senate confirmation process, which is absolutely central to our uh, checks and balances, made a mockery of. Uh, and I think people and and and. They also got a good, clear look at the the uh, uh, mob mentality of the of the far left today. It's it's Jacobin in many ways in his nature, harkening back to the uh, days of the French Revolution. And I think we're seeing it already reflected in the polls. People saw that they recognized the danger, and they're beginning to recoil from it. From the opening day of the hearings, of course, a lot of us were confused. I first tuned in, and I wasn't sure if I was listening to a Senate confirmation hearing or a meeting of the British House of Commons. So just the amount of of bickering and the noise going on, and of course, misbehavior by many in the gallery, and and of course, makes us wonder what's happened to civil discourse in this country. Listen, as you point out, uh, differences of opinion uh, is something that has been a part of American life since our founding days, but we've always managed to come together and, and find a way to work through and past our differences and, and come to some sort of disagreement. I, I'm just wondering not only the, the, the potential uh, shadow that this casts on uh, the business of the nation, the confidence in the Senate, but, but moreover, even moving forward, uh, is this going to taint decisions by the court? Is the left constantly going to say in every decision that he happens to vote on that doesn't go their way, that aha, there you go again. Here's a guy that's an illegitimate member of the United States Supreme Court, just as the same condiment has been made about the president. Well, this is a great danger. That uh, republics can all republics. Uh, the glue that holds a republic together is the consensus among all citizens over the legitimacy of the institutions themselves. You, we can, we can uh, differ. Uh, uh, vigorously, bitterly, uh, over issues or over elections. We can absolutely hate the people that won the last election. Uh, That's part of politics. But a republic can begin to unravel very quickly if any uh, part of that political body ceases to recognize the legitimacy of the institutions respect those institutions, and respect the outcome of an election. Uh, and, and that's what's very dangerous here. We, we, we saw that in the 1860s, and it almost pulled our country apart. Uh, Rome saw it in the uh, last days of the Roman Republic. Um, when it, it, the, the Republic will hold together as long as every part of the political spectrum at least agrees to respect the decisions of, of, of the electorate, uh, respect the outcome of elections, Respect the institutions, even though you you are are uh, dramatically opposed uh, uh, to the outcome, um, and and that's what really worries me about the times we're in. Is we now have a a significant part of the political spectrum that simply is refusing to accept the legitimacy of an election. You know, I detested uh, Barack Obama. I think he was one of the worst presidents in American history. But I always respected the institution. I respected the legitimacy of the election that brought him to power. 
I never boycotted a uh, an inaugural uh, of his. I never uh, uh, turned down an invitation to the White House uh, because I respected the institution and worked and worked very very hard to see that the that future elections went the other way. That's not happening anymore, and that's really worrisome. Well, particularly when it comes from a viewpoint of I want it my way without deference to uh, the rule of law or history. And, you know, there always used to be the the mentality that no matter what happened in Washington, D.C., payback time was always less than two years away. Be it a chance to change the occupant at the White House or a chance to change the occupants that reside in the Senate or in the House. Every two years you get a chance to voice your opinion on this. But here seemingly the attitude by by many has been, no, if it doesn't go our way, we're going to complain, we're going to protest, we're going to um, do everything that we can to try and, if not derail the process, at the very least cast such a shadow of doubt upon it, it seems as if every future decision, therefore, is illegitimate. What about this notion, as the president has suggested, the base being energized? We hear the left saying that, well, the gloves are off, payback time is going to come at the ballot box. What would you think um, November's going to look like, in your opinion? Well, as I said, I think that, that the, the American people uh, have, have awakened to the true nature of the far left. Uh, you know, they, they, they watched the mobs clawing at the doors of the Supreme Court when they didn't get their way. Uh, and, and, and we're seeing that now in polling data. The uh, NPR Marist poll uh, last week said that the, uh, the, the, the advantage, that the, the enthusiasm advantage that the Democrats had enjoyed uh, really since the election has now disappeared. Uh, uh, it's now matched uh, by uh, uh, people who are concerned over the future of our republic, having watched the Kavanaugh hearings and, and, and recognized what's truly at stake and have recognized the nature of, of the far left that we're facing. So do you think then some of the, the, the mob attitude, the mob mentality, as Mitch McConnell referred to it, um, has in many respects damaged their, their case as opposed to helped it? Uh, well, damage their case, but damage their case mainly by awakening that sleeping giant, the good people of America, uh, who do believe in our institutions, who do believe in our Constitution, who do believe in the rule of law, the civility of discourse. You know, I started every one of my town halls last year by pointing out that of, uh, no matter what our differences as Americans, we can take solace in knowing that our institutions were the best ever created in the history of mankind to resolve exactly the kind of differences that we're having today, as long as we are talking with each other and not shouting at each other. And yet for the last two years, we've seen the far left do nothing but shouting. And I think people realize we can't go on this way. A republic like ours simply cannot endure in this manner. Well, and I think the other uh, perhaps um, wake-up call, a reality check here, is that while we see a lot of grandstanding that's taken place on both extremes, uh, the majority of Americans tend to be right down the middle and have, as you suggest, Congressman McClintock, that respect for the historical process that served this nation through civil war and world wars and economic challenges for well over uh, 200 and something years. 
And, you know, as long as we continue to to respect that process and, and agree to get along, to say, okay, we have differences, but we'll at least get along and come together when it comes to respecting the process. And as I say, if you have to hold your nose for a couple of years, uh, so be it. Um, uh, it'll be interesting to see just what kind of a message then ultimately is sent by voters come November. Well, the, the the preservation of the Constitution ultimately is always in the hands of the people through the votes they cast. You know, we have uh, uh, this vast armed bureaucracy that will get in your face if you break any of the laws that we pass under our Constitution, from the law that says you got to stop at a stop sign to the law that says you can't punch somebody in the nose. Every one of those laws is backed up by force. But there is no penalty for breaking the Constitution. Why is that? It's because the Constitution was meant to be self-enforcing. Those are all the checks and balances we learned in school. Uh, I like to compare them to mother's rule. Uh, One slice of uh, pie, two hungry brothers. How does mother slice the pie so that both brothers are satisfied? One slices, the other chooses. The ambitions of one brother check the ambitions of the other. That's at the heart of our Constitution. But that only works as long as... Uh, those powers are evenly divided. That only works as long as the uh, uh, people uh, is, that we loan power to respect and obey that Constitution, and that includes respect the outcome of elections and respect the institutions that drive those elections, and that only works if we, the people, insist on it through the votes we cast. If we ever stop insisting on fidelity to our Constitution by the people we elect to office, then we forfeit that Constitution. Yeah, the old uh, observation by Ben Franklin uh, stepping out of uh, Constitution Hall after uh, they had first uh, done the rendering and uh, the question was posed to him by a woman, in fact, uh, what kind of a government have you brought us? And he infamously said, or famously said, a constitutional republic if you can keep it. And uh, certainly the job, the duty, the responsibility to all of us Uh, has been once again highlighted in the events of the last um, couple of weeks here in particular, and and I think once again underscored by Congressman McClintock, and that is to say that, you know, at the end of the day, uh, we've got to insist and we've got to do a better job at, at not intentionally politicizing that leads to polarizing um, certain processes in our form of self-governance. And uh, unfortunately, we've kind of gotten an F on the report card over the last couple of weeks in that arena, for sure. Our thanks to California Congressman Tom McClintock, representing the state of California to Washington, D.C., from the 4th District. More information, by the way, and Tom's good work and his insights available on the uh, House website, mcclintock.house.gov. That's mcclintock.house.gov. And our appreciation once again to Congressman Tom McClintock for that perspective from our nation's capital. All right, 516, let's get some perspective closer to home. Your ride home. In fact, the traffic right in front of your nose. Michael Bennett's going to give us some insights on that right now from the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome back to the conversation 520 on your Tuesday ride home. If you have been of the general opinion that churches don't pay taxes, um, you'd generally be right, unless unless you happen to have a church in San Rafael, in which case then, according to the San Rafael 
city council, you're not entirely exempt from, well, not property taxes or income taxes per se, but but special taxes. <laughs> Anybody who owns a home knows that, uh, my goodness, don't cities, municipalities, counties love to tack on special bond measures and special taxes here and there. So you pay a baseline property tax and then probably a third more on top of that for all these other things that they tend to add on. Well, one of the additions that was approved by the uh, San Rafael City Fathers uh, back in 210 was a paramedic services special tax. And you might say, well, yeah, we want to provide resources for our paramedics. That makes that makes sense. But when you tack it onto a property tax bill, yeah, it gets a little complicated given what the Constitution of California says about tax-exempt organizations like churches and property taxes. Let's get some insights now from constitutional lawyer, the founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute, Brad Dacus. Counselor, tell us a bit about what's going on in San Rafael and specifically uh, your client, Valley Baptist Church. Oh, you bet. A Valley Baptist Church had to come up with $13,000 because of this new special tax, uh, or they'd lose their building, have to shut their, their doors. Uh, that is exactly what our founding fathers and governments throughout history have uh, veered away from, because what the government can tax, the government can control and destroy. So this city, though, decided, they thought, San Rafael thought, well, we'll, we'll get around it by having a special tax, and they won't call it a property tax. They'll call it a square foot uh, in the building facility tax. Well, buildings, facilities, that's a part of your property. Uh, that's, that's a property tax. So we went ahead and stepped in, Craig, and uh, today in court, uh, our attorney on staff, Ray Hackey, for the Pacific Justice Institute, uh, argued the case, and uh, we think that the, the judge, um, judge uh, Superior Court Judge Stephen Presario, uh, in Marin County uh, Superior Court, um, was, was fair, and we're hopeful it's going to be a positive decision. In the next, uh, within the next couple weeks or, or months. Now, there are some pastors, no doubt, listening to this program right now who would say, oh my goodness, $13,000? If our church suddenly had that kind of unbudgeted expenditure just dropped in our lap, wow, that, that, could, that could really, really put us in an awkward position. And I suppose that probably describes a lot of churches around the Bay Area that might have congregations of, I don't know, 150, 200 people. And, you know, they get along, they get their bills paid, but they certainly don't have a lot of excess change sitting in a bank account somewhere. $13,000 is an awful lot of money. And disappointing to see that they tried to kind of do an end run here. I guess when you tack things on like fire, police protection, services, things of that sort, it seemingly kind of, you know, goes down a little bit easier. But at the end of the day, isn't the base argument here that a, the tax is still a tax? Right. And it's still a property tax. Uh, and what's really, the real rub here was, was the fact that uh, schools, uh, you know, public schools, well, they were exempt. So it's interesting, looking at the law, the, the city said, well, for, for schools, we'll treat this like a um, We'll treat this like a property tax, and they're exempt. Uh, but churches are listed along with uh, public schools. But for the for the churches, though, they said, "Well, we'll treat this like a, an excise tax." That's it. Yeah, an excise tax. And that's what they're trying to get away with. And if they get away with it, um, I make no mistake. There's a lot of intolerant places in this country, city governments, and where we can see them attempting to have more than just say thirteen thousand. A lot of churches, they can 
they can make it so high they could basically shut down churches where they're needed the most in some of these very uh, hostile communities uh, to to faith. So it's it's uh, there's a lot on the line here, and I will say this one thing, Craig. Uh, while we're optimistic, uh, whether if the other side loses, the city of San Rafael loses, they will likely appeal it. And so this battle this is the first battle, but it's it's going to be carrying on probably uh, for quite some time as we move this up the ladder. And, uh, and, and and seek final justice. There are some aspects of this that almost seem to be reminiscent of the battle that you waged with the city of San Leandro on the half on behalf of um, Faith Fellowship Foursquare Church there, and that is once again the overreach of a local municipality. And you know, let, let's let's as you point out, make no mistake about this. If the city of San Rafael were able to prevail in this case, not only would other cities queue up and say, "Aha." But then, if they think that they're going to slip by a, quote, paramedic services special tax, you had better believe they can find all kinds of other areas that need money uh, where they're going to call it a special tax and somehow add some sort of um, altruistic uh, title to it. And again, I'm, I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't be supporting our, our paramedics. You better believe if I have a heart attack in the next five minutes, I'm going to thank God that they exist. We all do, and all would. But... Uh, there, there's an awful lot at stake here, isn't there, just, you know, across the entire state. Were San Rafael able to prevail? Right. It would have a, a huge impact. And, you know, if the legislature in California and the, the people want to amend the state constitution or uh, they want to have a different fee set up that doesn't tax uh, property, um, they can do that. So it's, it's not like it's, um, it's anti-paramedic services. It's simply... It's simply recognizing that the law in California protects churches from property-based taxes because they are so dangerous for the survival of religious institutions doing so much uh, to serve the communities in ways that the government simply can't. You know, and at the end of the day, we're talking about such a paltry sum. I mean, if you if you take a look at the, uh, I think this was based on square footage, if you look at the base of square footage of churches in San Rafael against commercial buildings, et cetera, et cetera, you would see that at the end of the day, we're really talking nickels and dimes. Trust me, uh, the city attorney for San Rafael's office will spend much more than $13,000 just attempting to argue on the city's behalf in this case. So it, 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 it really proves, once again, uh, some short-sightedness, um, complete ignorance, apparently, of the California state constitution. And I'm, I'm glad that you feel as if there's, there's some um, positive light here that the judge may be favorable in this case. If not, I have a strange suspicion this could be an opportunity for, I don't know, somebody higher up to weigh in on this. Definitely. <laughs> All right. Well, we appreciate the time and the insights on that, and uh, we'll be praying not only for uh, Pacific Justice, that uh, you're granted insight and, and, and wisdom and um, working your way through this case, but certainly for uh, a mercy on behalf of Valley Baptist Church in San Rafael, because as I said before, they get away with it in San Rafael. Ha <laughs> Believe me, this tax will be coming to a church near you guaranteed. But uh, I have a strong suspicion that Brad Dacus is going to do his very best to make sure that doesn't happen. Brad Dacus, president, constitutional lawyer, and the founder of Pacific Justice Institute. More information about their great work by going online to pacificjustice.org. 5.30. Back over to the KFAX Traffic Center. Is that where we want to go? Is that your plan here? Oh! Oh! 
gosh. All right, now i got to wear a neck brace for the next six months. <laughs> you just scared somebody. Somebody looked up in their rearview mirror, probably even put the brakes on. Don't blame me. It's the other guy on the other side of the glass here. I'm innocent. I have no control over anything of this show whatsoever. Um, and if you need a good lawyer, I'll give you a recommendation. In fact, we got another good lawyer coming up in a minute. Right now, though, let's, uh, let's not talk legal. Let's talk traffic with Michael Bennett. Michael? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. The Senate confirmation process was contentious and emotional. That process is over. My focus now is to be the best justice I can be. Well, we'll certainly hope for that. And, and meanwhile, uh, that's probably the understatement of the century, to, <laughs> to consider this a, um, a contentious process is probably describing the events of the last couple of weeks here uh, very mildly. All right. We are, um, we've got a lawyer up here today, haven't we? We've gone from uh, Congressman McClintock to as a lawyer to certainly Brad Dacus, and now we're joined by another great lawyer. He is also a fantastic syndicated talk show host, best-selling author. He's got a new book out called Secret Sauce, the Founder's Original Recipe for Limited American Democracy. Probably one of the, the most learned individuals, certainly, that I know on not just the United States Constitution, but the historicity of it. And it's the significance that that plays in shedding light as to where we're at today and uh, probably equally so where we are headed. Joining me now is the host of The Bob Zadek Show, heard Sunday mornings at 8 a.m. on our sister station, 860 a.m. The Answer. Bob Zadek, as always, great to have you on the program. Greg, thanks very much for your hospitality and inviting me to join you this afternoon. So uh, we heard there uh, the newest uh, junior member of the high court saying a contentious process, to be sure. There have been remarks made by both sides that the base is being energized. And I have to wonder, how far is that uh, possible energy going to take us? Certainly it may have an impact on the midterm elections. But there's, there's another aspect of this that maybe you can shed some light on. Um, and that is the notion that, as apparently the uh, the Congress has say so over to the number of members of the United States Supreme Court hasn't always been nine. Uh, that maybe payback time, if the Democrats take control come January, is to consider doing what? Adding more members to the U.S. Supreme Court's current nine body. Well, that's been threatened by certain Democrats often not for attribution, but what's really strange in your introduction, Craig, to this topic, what's really strange is when the founders gave us the blueprint for our country, the body, the the judiciary, which is the third branch of government, there's the executive, of course, the presidency, the president, there is the legislative, which is the House and, and the Senate, And then there is the judiciary. Well, the judiciary is the only of the three that is unaffected by a vote. Uh, They are affected very indirectly because the president, who is elected, uh, nominates justices, and Congress or the Senate confirms both of those are elected. But the, the Supreme Court is the most removed from the political process. And yet, even though it is built to be removed from the political process, it seems like the entire political system 
is focused on the Supreme Court, as if they are a super legislature, a super executive, as if they are nine men who rule, or, or women, nine, ele- nine judges who rule us, and they rule over the, pre- the president and the legislature. It is so strange to me how intensely political a institution has become when it was designed to be the least political. It is astonishing to me and profoundly unhealthy. And, of course, what's curious about this is this seems, at least in in recent times, to be the group that we turn to if we don't like what the president does or we don't like what the legislature does, as if somehow they are supposed to be uh, opinion makers and opinion breakers. Well, it's the group. It's the group we turn to, and sometimes, if we, you mean people on the right, then the we also means people on the left. Of course, it is the last resort. If you cannot succeed by controlling the president, and you cannot succeed in the legislature in accomplishing your goal, the only thing left is your hope that the Supreme Court will overturn the legislation that you oppose because the other guys got it enacted. So it is the last resort. So we turn to it because it's the last step. If you, if the Supreme Court doesn't agree with your perspective, whatever that may be, you're done. You have to wait for the political process to turn in your favor. That, so we don't look to the Supreme Court as a legislative body, but we can talk about that because they often act like one. But we look to them, because that's all that's left if we have lost at the presidential level and lost at the, at the legislative level. Now, the, the consternation here, of course, and we saw just a scant amount of this during Neil Gorsuch's confirmation hearings, but this, of course, is considered to be a, a pivotal vote because it was sort of the swing vote. It was the vote that was the tiebreaker. It went either 5-4 uh, or 4-5, depending upon the nature of the subject matter, um, uh, under the tenure of Justice Kennedy. Now the sense is, well, this is a significantly more conservative judge, protected by a significantly more conservative their president, therefore sort of, quote-unquote, tipping the scales here. And and it, it would not historically be the first time that people had a significant difference of opinion with uh, the sway or the direction of of the court. In fact, uh, back in 1937, then President Roosevelt had not only major issues with the United States Supreme Court, uh, but so much so that he attempted to change the face of the court. Talk to us a bit about that historically, and and could the Democrats? try to do something like that again come January if they were to prevail in the elections? What a great uh, question, Craig. That's, uh, that's a, a wonderful topic uh, to help our listeners understand the dynamic. First of all, the number we, we all, we Americans, assume that somehow when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the tablet, somewhere on that tablet was written there are going to be nine justices on the Supreme Court, and that's been the way it is ever since. Well, of course, the number of justices has varied. The history of our country, the first statute was 1789, which created a number of justices at six, a chief justice and five others. Then it went to seven for some random reason. But then it was ten. Um, 
then when it, when it was 10, when Andrew Johnson, one of the most loathsome presidents, he was, he was Lincoln's vice president, and he became president when Lincoln was assassinated. Well, Johnson, Andrew Johnson, was, was a loathsome guy, pro-slavery, and there were 10 justices on the Supreme Court when he became president. There was a fear that one of the justices would die or retire, and Andrew Johnson, who's a loathsome guy at that time, would get an appointment. To deny him the power to appoint, Congress said, no problem, let's reduce the number of justices back down to seven. Boom. That means if justice is retired, Johnson doesn't get a choice. Purely political. Now we get to Franklin Roosevelt, which is what you talked about. And that was the court-packing scheme. When Franklin Roosevelt enacted the New Deal, everything in the New Deal, or most of the New Deal programs, were believed by most scholars, most lawyers, to be profoundly unconstitutional. Well, President Johnson, uh, President Roosevelt, was not one to be discouraged just because his measures were unconstitutional, and the court kept on finding them unconstitutional. So Roosevelt announced, I'm not going to let those nine old white men stand in the way of me protecting Americans. And he threatened to, and he controlled the Congress, remember, to increase the number of Supreme Court justices from 9 to 15. And he would appoint then six justices, boom, he gets his legislation through. Supreme Court then, wanting to preserve their stature, they said, well, on second thought, maybe it is constitutional. And they started finding his measures constitutional. That was known at the time as a switch in time saved nine save the nine justices on the Supreme Court. So it was the threat of court packing that caused uh, President Roosevelt to, in effect, rewrite the Constitution so it suited his purposes. And nobody objected because it was only a threat. It never happened. However, the number of justices can be changed by legislation. It doesn't require a constitutional amendment. Therefore, if the Democrats control the, the Senate, the House, and the presidency in 2020, and they are stuck with the Supreme Court, which is will still be presumably conservative, they can simply pass legislation, get up to 15 or 25 justices, appoint 10 justices, and the Supreme Court just got profoundly changed. It's just plain that easy. Whether they will do it or not and mess with our most trusted institution politically is another, con- is another issue. But they could. They, have, they could have the votes to do it. Now, there's always sort of this historical, particularly since uh, that attempt at the court packing by FDR, this sense that it's almost sort of a, a, a sacred cow. I have to wonder just how sacred is it? In other words, as you suggest, they have certainly the constitutional power to do it. Um, aside from the obvious payback time for Brett Kavanaugh, are there downsides, or or could this yin-yang that we've seen over recent years, the consternation over the constant 5-4 vote, could adding members to the high court bring a better sense of balance? Let's explore that question when we come back to more of our dialogue with syndicated talk show host Bob Zadek. Funny sidebar. 
as much as he almost paid with his political life for the attempt at the court packing, and finally Roosevelt backed down. Ironically, in a sense, he kind of got to by virtue of the fact that he was seated, of course, as president of the United States longer than any other president in the U.S. He, he served into the beginning of his fourth term. And by April of 1945, when he passed away, FDR had appointed eight of the nine justices. Time. That's all he needed was just time. We're going to spend some more time with Bob Zadek in a moment. Let me mention, by the way, if you'd like to get more information about the Bob Zadek program, Sunday mornings, 8 o'clock, it's a great alternative to a lot of the nonsensical debate that you hear on many of the talking head programs on Sunday mornings. Want something a little bit more intelligent in terms of dialogue with some historical and constitutional perspective and always amazing guests? Well, that's your invitation to check out the Bob Zadek Show. Sunday mornings, 8 a.m. on our sister station, 860 a.m., The Answer. And of course, you can get details at Bob's website as as well as information about recent guests and his podcasts by going to bobzadek.com, B-O-B-Z. Z-A-D-E-K dot com. We'll get back to more of our conversation with Bob Zadek as this edition of Lifeline continues. 547, so says the clock. What say ye, Michael Bennett, about traffic? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. I was not appointed to serve one party or one interest, but to serve one nation. America's Constitution and laws protect every person of every belief and every background. And uh, there, of course, uh, the most newly appointed member and confirmed member of the United States Supreme Court, Brett Kavanaugh. He's right. It's supposed to be uh, not the service of one party or the other party, but in fact, the nation, the Constitution at the very heart. Although increasingly, we are seeing the United States Supreme Court and appointments there too highly, highly politicized. So... On the heels of a number of New Deal measures of Franklin Roosevelt that were thumbs down to by the United States Supreme Court, most notably the National Recovery Act, the president then said, you know what, if I can't get my way, I'm going to add to the court until I do. That was not well received politically. And yet, as we're learning today from constitutional expert and syndicated talk show host Bob Zadek, um, it's up to Congress as to how many members are seated on the United States Supreme Court, leading me to pose the question, okay, with the current nine, and we've seen historically, meaning in these last uh, number of sessions, a lot of yin-yang, a lot of 5-4 votes going on. Would the country, would the Constitution, Bob, be served any better if... In fact, Congress said, you know what, nine, no, maybe 10, 15 of them. Would we be served if there are more members of the U.S. Supreme Court, or should there be fewer, as in the founding days, in the early days, when there was only six? Craig, that is such a perceptive question. I I must compliment you. Uh, And it's also a fascinating question. First of all, you referred back to the the first uh, number of justices, which was six a chief, and five others. That was the Judiciary Act of 1789. What's interesting is, in 1789, the Supreme Court had nothing to do. They were bored. They didn't even have a courtroom. They, they convened in the basement somewhere, and they rode circuit trying cases. 
It was a terrible job with nothing to do of any consequence. Uh, now, so therefore, that frame of reference of the founding is sort of the wrong frame of reference. However, your question is fascinating, Craig, because I believe the number of justices we have at nine, which is, as I said, it's random. It's a made-up number. It isn't a calculation. And point of information, of all of the Western democracies, we have, as a relationship to population, far and away the fewest number of Supreme Court judges, even though we have a profoundly active Supreme Court. So the number of justices we have is far too low for our country. Now, I have written about increasing the number of justices to like 25. Now, and I picked 25 at random, only because it's much bigger than nine. Now, why do I say that's healthier? Because the likelihood of having, out of 25 justices, of having 13-12 splits is statistically much less likely than a 5-4 split. Therefore, once you have 25 judges, one judge being appointed by a president will rarely tip the balance. It'll, it'll almost never happen again. So we are, this is a self-inflicted wound, in my opinion. We should, and I have, a, I have in my head a system how to do it, so you don't give one president all the appointing power all at one time. You do it gradually. But we would be so much more healthy as a country if we had 25 justices on the Supreme Court. It's an absurd circumstance, simply as a function of our population. We have, and we have more statutes than ever, and the Supreme Court is the ultimate arbiter of the constitutionality of statutes. Well, we have more people, more statutes, more going on, and yet the number of justices stays the same only because of lethargy. So you're exactly right to zero in on this issue. And we have, this is a self-inflicted wound by our uh, body politic. We should have far more justices than we do. Everything, every part of life in America would be more politically healthy than it is now. Well, and certainly I think there would also be less consternation because right now, let's face it, that one guy or gal that is the decision maker who ends up being the 5-4 uh, is always the one that we kind of point to and say, if it wasn't for so-and-so, and certainly statistically, a larger court would reduce the likelihood of that. But I have to wonder, if you got up to that number, 25-something justices, would that bog down the court? Uh, I mean, right now, I think on average, they hear 50 to 80 cases. I think there's something like 10,000 10, cases that that, uh, that approach them every year. So there's just a small percentile of actual cases that are heard. Could this run the risk, though, of really slowing the process down? I doubt it. And don't forget, Craig, you're comparing, you're starting from nine, a made-up number. What if 25 was the starting number? I mean, your, your, your question presupposes we have found the sweet spot at 9. No, we have found the sour spot at 9. 25 or 17 is far and away uh, the sweet spot. Also, there's another interesting parallel, if I may, that I'd like to draw from the lessons of Madison. Madison believed that 
there would be that he wasn't afraid of political parties because he didn't envision two parties. He thought that when the country is very large, there would be all kinds of factions, rich against poor, landowners versus tenants, farmers and urban, uh, businessmen and shippers, and they would form various alliances on various issues, and they would be neutralizing each other, sort of like a parliamentary system when you have coalitions. If you have 25 Supreme Court justices, the likelihood of having 12 of them think pretty much alike, and 13 others think pretty much alike, is absurdly remote. They would agree sometimes and disagree on others, and there would be constantly newly formed coalitions. There would not be a conservative wing and a liberal wing. There would be no wings. There would be a, a groups of people who agreed on some issues and found themselves allied or, or opposed to other issues. Remember that um, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, her closest friend on the Supreme Court, was Justice Scalia a polar opposite of hers. She didn't always vote with him, but they understood each other. With 25 people, you're much less likely to have color war, the, the red against the blue. You're more likely to have constantly changing coalitions and groups, which is infinitely healthier for the country. Then there's no such thing as a conservative or a red judge and a blue judge. All right, let me ask you one one final question here, Robert, before our time winds down, and and, and I fear I'm going to complicate the dialogue even more so, uh, and that is this. Certainly in the original idea of the Founding Fathers, uh, term limits were, were never articulated. And, and as we know, aside from term limits that were imposed by Congress after uh, President Roosevelt died, uh, nothing at the congressional level, certainly not at the U.S. Supreme Court level, has any sort of term limit to it. One of the big phrases that we kept hearing over the course of the last couple of weeks was the importance of, of, of mulling through this process because, after all, this was an appointment for life. Is there any value in a dialogue as to whether or not we ought to say, look, um, somebody like uh, William O. Douglas, who spent 36 and a half years on the high court, or Clarence Thomas, who's about to uh, complete uh, 27 years this October, should we consider putting a limit to that and saying you can serve as a U.S. Supreme Court justice for 10 years and that's it? Is there any value to that dialogue? I think there's great value. And it's funny, you picked 10 years. That's the number I would pick as well, the exact same number of years, under, under a system that I think might be interesting, I would be open to it, would be a 10-year appointment, and, you can, and the, the justice at the end of his, his or her term could be renominated and would have to be reconfirmed. That makes each appointment less significant, less the subject of fighting, less politicized, because the stakes are infinitely lower. I love the idea of term limits. I can't find any downside to it. And the d danger is the court would become, quote, politicized, because justices would have to sort of, in effect, campaign with their decision-making to get reappointed. But who are we kidding? The court is painfully politicized now. So that horse has left the barn, or their animals live in barns. And, and therefore, I think the trade-off might very well be worth it. 
And, 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 you know, again, as you aptly point out, to try and suggest that somehow uh, by implementing term limits uh, would politicize things. <laughs> and so today isn't. Some good uh, remarks and observations by Bob Zadek. He'll do more of this on the topic coming up Sunday on the Bob Zadek Show. That can be heard locally here in the San Francisco Bay Area at 860 AM, The Answer, our sister station. And, of course, Bob is syndicated, so if you have friends anywhere up and down the West Coast that want to check out his show, you can tell them uh, to tune in. You can get a complete uh, map of the affiliates that carry the Bob Zadek Show by going to Bob's website at bobzadek.com. Same location. You can find out information about recent guests, details concerning his new book, Secret Sauce, the founder's original recipe for limited American democracy, as well as podcasts from past shows. That's the Bob Zadek Show, Sunday mornings, 8 a.m. on KTRB, 860 a.m., and a reprise broadcast. Let's see how good the memory here is. Saturdays at 4 p.m., Sundays at 4 p.m. on 860 a.m., the answer as well. Does that look right to you, Jarrell? He's looking real quick. I think that is absolutely right. Four o'clock Saturdays, four o'clock Sundays on 860 AM, The Answer. And again, on the web at BobZadek, Z-A-D-E-K dot com. Robert, as always, we appreciate the time and the insights, my friend. Keep up the good work. 6.01, we got to get caught up on some traffic here. Headline news next, but first, traffic-wise, Michael Bennett, what's going on out there? Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 